Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner. Glad to be here, whether you're listening live or as most of you seem to do by podcast. We have oh, something like 20 times more people listening to the podcast on demand than listening live. And that's just fine, whatever serves you. Some people listen live when they can, and if they miss it or miss part of it, they go to the podcast. If podcasts are new to you, it's essentially nothing more than an automatic download. You program your iTunes or other podcatcher to run out and grab these programs once a day or once a week, and gosh, there's literally tens of thousands of free podcasts available. And because this whole innovation of the automatic download or the podcast is really an Apple invention, uh, the iTunes store is the most elegant way to do this. iTunes is a free download for Mac or PC. You can use it simply as a pod catcher and subscribe to as many podcasts as you'd like at the iTunes store or any other podcast directory, for that matter. And uh, I, I do caution you, there are many podcast directories on the Internet. Most of them have really bad uh, search engines. I, uh, I've been very disappointed searching a lot of these podcast directories. Again, that's why I like the iTunes Store and, and recommend that. It's all free anyway. The download is free. You could use, as many of us do, iTunes to organize all of your music, to burn CDs, to make playlists, um, to even convert uh, the format or the sample rates. If you're technically oriented, you can get in there, and it's a very powerful program. But even if you just used it for the podcast, that's a great idea. Go to uh, apple.com slash iTunes and download it onto your Mac or PC, and you'll be all set. And just go to the iTunes store and um, click on subscribe. And uh, you can also get a 10-session, a 10-program uh, uh, sample of our premium audio program there. If you search for my name, Michael Dunner, or if... Uh, it's probably the best way to do it. Or you could search for uh, Empower Yourself in Paradise. This is our premium audio program. We sell this for $0.99. Cents. Subscribe for three ninety six a month. But if you're not sure you want to subscribe, you can listen to excerpts, uh, short little two- and three-minute sound bites at FocusedPassion.com or... Again, go to the iTunes store and search for Empower Yourself in Paradise. Separate you, your and self into two words. Empower Yourself in Paradise. Or again, just type my name, Michael Benner, and um, you'll be able to subscribe to a 10-session, 10-program sample absolutely free. Check it out. Say, hey, you know, I really like this program that Michael does with his business partner, Steve Snyder. It's studio quality. We're not on the telephone. 
as we are here every Sunday. And uh, it's a conversation. And sometimes we even surprise ourselves with what we come up with. It's provocative, it's compelling, and like this class, includes a guided imagery exercise every week. So you can sample it with the excerpts at FocusedPassion.com or subscribe to a free podcast of 10 samples, full, complete programs uh, called Empower Yourself in Paradise at the iTunes Store. Okay? All right. Uh, While you're at it, leave a comment, too. If you get a chance to go to the iTunes Store and leave a comment that really helps drive traffic to the site helps us to grow uh, the listenership to this class Uh, I'll appreciate it and the people you recommend it to uh, they'll appreciate it as well just like you see on Amazon or other sites a little review what you like about the program give it a rating and uh, you know come from the heart say what you like about it and that'll help other people who are looking through these tens of thousands of podcasts for something to inspire them. So thanks a lot for that. All right, well, our uh, topic for the day today is the spiritual hierarchy. Again, an an ancient concept found in the Prisca Theologia, the ancient teachings, or the ageless wisdom. This um, is also part of the perennial philosophy, sometimes known as perennialism, there is a body of knowledge that is found uniting or connecting, linking up shamanism of all the various cultures in the world with the mystical traditions that stand above religion. Now, as religion gets more and more orthodox, more fundamental, and I guess more literally interpreted, it gets more rigid and uh, uh, more crystallized, or some would say concretized, inflexible, unbending, and also more judgmental and more critical of anybody who disagrees with their fixed religion. That's what happens when you move to the right in religion, taking it literally, suggesting that certain books written by men are so divinely inspired that they are infallible. I think we're all divinely inspired to varying (laughs) degrees uh, in different ways on different days. But um, I'm certainly fallible, and I think all the religious prophets are fallible. And that accounts for the contradictions that we find in the Bible. A fundamentalist uh, Christian, for example, will say, read the Bible. Well, those of us who have know that it's full of contradiction, and it's very confusing, especially when you attempt to unify Judaism and Christianity, and you hear a Christian talking about the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, for example, as many fundamentalists like to do, which is fine. But not at the expense of the New Testament. You know, are you a a Ten Commandments, God is mean and wrathful and and vengeful, uh, kind of a, quote, Christian? Uh, 
or are you more of the Sermon on the Mount kind of a Christian, a gentle person, a pacifist, one who would never own a gun or go to war? I don't know how anybody can own a gun and call themselves a Christian, for example. But that's been lost. For hundreds of years, Christians were all pacifists. And then as the Catholic Church formed in the 4th and 5th and 6th centuries, they raised an army and they changed all of that. So there's a lot of confusion. Many Christians are confused about what makes me, and what's different. What did Christ mean when he said, I come not to change the law, but to fulfill it? All kinds of contradictions. So our topic for the day today, a spiritual hierarchy, is um, the idea of a hierarchy that, first of all, is non-authoritarian. When we use the word hierarchy in the English language, it, it suggests an organizational structure that is based on authority. And um, everybody's got a boss, right? Everybody works for somebody. I think Barack Obama's finding that out. He, he he had his intentions going in, and then he sort of found out, well, you're only the president. Uh, there are powers that are not discussed in the evening news or in the newspapers that um, render you only the president or only a member of the federal government. You're not really running the show here. The bankers and very large corporations have an enormous amount of of sway, and even within the most elite, um, everybody's got a boss, right? So here's your hierarchy, but the hierarchies of men are based on power, authority, um, and the repercussions that come from, you know, not acceding or recognizing that power and authority. As I uh, do this class on this Sunday, January 23rd, 2011, um, the media is buzzing with news of Keith Overman either being fired or having quit his job at MSNBC. Um, most people familiar with Keith Overman and what he does um, presume that he did not quit. He was fired. There are stories of a $14 million severance package. He probably has a no-compete clause so that he may not show up anyplace else for at least a year, maybe more. Um, sort of like the Conan O'Brien thing. And being one of the most progressive voices in cable TV news, you have to wonder what did he come up against? What authority uh, was he bucking? Right. But the idea of a spiritual hierarchy is this ancient concept from the ageless wisdom, perennialism, shamanism, esoteric philosophy, mysticism, from time out of mind that says there is an order, there is a spiritual structure 
to the universe, but it's not based on power and authority in the way we think of it in the human realm, but rather a spiritual hierarchy. And this is the first distinction I want to make today. Would have to be a hierarchy that is based on love. Now, spiritually, when you talk about power, this is usually a reference to the will or the mental nature of God. The word of God, the divine plan, sometimes it's called God's breath. Aloha, for example, is literally the breath of God. Aloha, the breath of God, the word of God, the idea of God's breath. In the beginning, there was the word. Um, this is the power or the will, the will power uh, of God. But God has, if you will, an emotional nature. <laughs> it's a stretch to compare it to human emotions, but many religious people do. They project upon God not only love, but as I said before, anger and wrath and, and vengeance. You know, you don't want to make God angry. Well, what kind of a God gets angry? You know, it's it's absurd on the surface of it. Uh, what what kind of God would seek revenge? What kind of God could be that petty? And and this is very uncomfortable for again a lot of the fundamentalists in the various religions, whatever they happen to be, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, in particular, the uh, three monotheistic religions. It's a very uncomfortable idea when you begin to bring up well, what kind of God is so petty? as to seek revenge or to condemn his children to a lake of fire and eternal damnation. Uh, you know, in, in uh, writing the newsletter this week, I pointed out that the, uh, excuse me a second here, <clears throat> the uh, Jewish religion has an interesting view of all of this. And if you ever saw the movie with Albert Brooks uh, and Meryl Streep defending your life, uh, that's a lot like the traditional Jewish uh, impression of heaven, which is that everybody eventually gets there, right? The coming world, everybody sooner or later is going to get to heaven, even non-Jews. They're, they're very liberal <laughs> in, that, in that view. But what you have to do, is uh, spend some period of time uh, sitting with God and reviewing everything that you ever did or thought or felt in your life. And uh, as if you and God are sitting alone in a movie theater, and that that would be punishment enough, right? And uh, so a period of purgation, if you will, uh, Boy, it's been a long time since I've done a program just on purgation or what in mysticism is known as the purgative way. We'll have to revise that sometime. To purge yourself, the idea of purgatory. Uh, Catholics had that idea for almost 2,000 years, and they just dropped it a couple of years ago. No more purgatory. 
limbo is still in limbo. Or I'm, I'm not sure where the church stands on limbo anymore. Uh, <clears throat> that was a repository of babies' souls. And perhaps all of those who lived before Christ would be in some sort of limbo or another world. But essentially, religions, the religions of the world, speak of here and there, the material world, and heaven, the coming world. Muslims call call it jhana. And it's sort of a you know, twofold dynamic, a polarity. You're either in the material world or you're in the spiritual world. You're either incarnated with your soul into this body, and your soul is in most religions, especially as they become literal and fundamental. Your soul is in your body somehow, right? And uh, that a new soul especially Christianity, this is clear, a new soul is fashioned upon conception. Uh, in mysticism, the souls are eternal. They have no beginning, and they have no end, and your soul is in heaven now. Uh, this is perhaps the greatest heresy of all, the idea that your soul is already in heaven. That would suggest there is no hell. Or that this experience in physical dense is your hell. This is hell. Why is life in form hell? Because this is the only place that fear exists. Well, what's so frightening about the world? That it's separated. That everything in the material world is separated, at least by appearance, from every other thing. And so it becomes largely unknowable and unknown and confusing and therefore frightening. Excuse me a sec. <clears throat> I still have a little vestige of my cold from last week. And so... The fact that you are a separated being, living in a world of separated forms, is the birth of all fear and confusion, which is what evil is. The ancient uh, uh, Hermetic or Egyptian philosophy um, echoed by the Greeks. Socrates, in fact, said, uh, fear and ignorance is evil. Evil is fear. Fear is evil. Uh, it's that simple. People behave in evil ways when they're frightened and confused. So the antidote, of course, to fear and confusion, its antithesis is love and understanding. Okay, So there's your antidote for evil, which is love. So good over evil is really love over fear, right? I've done programs on just that topic. And the whole idea of elevating good has to kill evil to love redeeming fear, saving it, or uplifting fear. You don't, love doesn't kill fear. It vanquishes it by embracing the confusion with 
knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And, and wisdom is a quality of love more than that power known as God's will. So the primary qualities in the Trinity, the grand Trinity in all religions, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or Father, Son, and Mother, as, uh, as the pagans uh, and the mystics would say, is the father aspect is the will of God, uh, the offspring of father and mother, the son, so-called, is the heart of God, uh, or the soul aspect. This is the Christos. Uh, this is Christ consciousness. This is the Buddha nature, and it's in everyone. The love of God would be the force. If God's will, the Father aspect, is an energy, God's love, the Son aspect, is the force, the driving force, or the push behind the energy. And then so-called Holy Spirit, the Mother aspect, is the material world, the physical dense world. Uh, you can see the word Mother in material, mater, madre, the mother aspect, because the material world is receptive to the causative nature of spirit. And that would be uh, intelligent activity, the incarnation, the, the working out of God's will through God's love as consciousness into the physical world. One, two, three. Father, Son, Mother, Holy Spirit. Okay, Willpower, God's will. God's love and God's activity in the physical dense world, redeeming fear, confusion, and all that is negative, all that is evil, all that comes from fear and ignorance. Okay, pretty simple stuff, and yet um, clearly uh, not a part of uh, any orthodox or literal interpretation of religion. And yet, this is fundamental to esoteric philosophy and to mysticism, this triune representation of divinity. And yet, <clears throat> my point in, in, in explaining this and describing it is to say that it's obviously devoid of any sense of a hierarchy. There's just here and there. There's just the spiritual realm, heaven so-called, and then physical dense. And you're incarnated into the world. Again, most religion says your soul is fashioned or made by God upon physical conception. Right? The mystical traditions say no, energy, spirit, has no beginning and no end. So your soul has always existed. But where does it live? And what what does the ageless wisdom say about the multi-tiered aspect of the spiritual realm? The spiritual hierarchy, again, not based on authority, but based on qualities of love. It's love that is the magnetic nature that not only attracts us to each other, in a horizontal sense in the physical world, but draws us toward our source in a vertical sense 
in the spiritual world. Love as the soul. Love as consciousness is magnetic. You can feel the attraction. And in hatred and animosity, you can feel those poles reverse and you actually feel yourself being magnetically repelled by another person uh, who you find offensive or their language or um, you know their fear in confusion. Uh, fear is frightening. It's contagious. <laughs> There's nothing more scary than confronting a person filled with fear. Uh, you can see that in animals, right? Why is the dog frightening you? Because you frightened the dog. Well, how will you get the dog to stop frightening you? Stop frightening the dog. <laughs> how do you do that? Stop being afraid. It's a catch-22, kind of a, a vicious cycle. But human beings are theoretically more conscious than the animals, so it falls upon us to initiate a breaking of that cycle of, of I'm afraid and so I'm going to frighten you and your fear is scary to me. So I'm going to suggest that in the, I'm going to tell you more than a suggestion. I'm going that's the hypnotist to me coming out of the suggestion. I'm going to explain here in the next few minutes this hierarchy based not on authority but on love as it's been discussed in shamanism and esoteric philosophy, in mysticism uh, throughout the ages. And <clears throat> again, it starts with the idea that just as there are three planes, uh, sometimes referred to as spheres, interlocking uh, circles, circles that represent globes or spheres. You, you can think of it that way, but it's probably simpler, at least where we begin here, to just think of planes of existence, like floors of a building. Say you have a, a, a skyscraper with a hundred stories, a hundred floors in the skyscraper, and there's an elevator that runs up and down. And, um, you know, God lives in the penthouse, and we're down here on the street. And rather than there only being one place, heaven, that is other than, beyond or behind the, the, the physical uh, universe, what if there were many levels or planes of existence? This is what the ancients have always said. Uh, this is part of the Islamic philosophy, a multi-tiered heaven. You not only desire to live a righteous life and to worship no God but Allah, but you also aspire to the highest heaven. You may not make it. You might end up in heaven number two or heaven number seven or or uh, you've heard of seventh heaven, uh, varying degrees of closeness to God. How close to God can you get? So that's a part of um, uh, 
of, of Muslim philosophy, and again, particularly in Sufism and in the other mystical traditions that I've explained, there is an increasing likelihood that um, the student or the seeker, or shall I say, the aspirant, the one who aspires, um, has this sense of evolving even after death, of continuing the approach of the soul to the Father, even after that soul has been freed from its karmic bond, the, the, the reincarnation wheel, if you believe in such things, or, or the single incarnation, if you're coming from that place. The idea that you don't just go to heaven or hell, but that wherever you go, whatever you do, the evolution, the unfolding of your spiritual potential continues. Your growth toward the father aspect goes up from floor to floor in the spiritual skyscraper, from level to level, from plane to plane. Now, that's the important part, how many planes there are, how many levels. Doesn't seem to, to matter that much, to me anyway, to, to a philosopher. The initial approach is simply the concept that, wow, I thought I died, went to heaven or not, and that was it. Now I'm finding out that in these ancient traditions, there's a belief that there is no end at all. There's never an end. You just leave upon mortal death the, the, the coil, the physical body behind, and are freed to, quote, go to heaven, this other side. Sometimes people will even talk about the other side. Well, what if that other side is Again, many, many levels or many, many spheres. That's the spiritual hierarchy. Now, I'm going to, at this point, get a little more specific by teaching you about what theosophy says about this. And I have to take a minute to describe theosophy. There is small t theosophy that goes back to the 12th, 13th centuries in Europe, especially in the area of the Rhine River in Bavaria and Germany, the, the so-called Rhineland mystics. Uh, in this uh, period, long before the Renaissance, Middle Ages, right, um, began to develop the teachings of Plato and Plotinus. So Neoplatonism became small-t theosophy to a large degree in the 12th and 13th centuries. A great thing about living today is we can Google any of those terms. Google Neoplatonism. Google Plotinus. Google the Rhineland mystics. Okay. Google theosophy and see what you come up with. Okay, really beautiful, rich, 
largely Christian, to some extent Judeo-Christian, Western mysticism uh, in its uh, revival, its earliest stages since the ancient Greeks and the impact that Egyptian philosophy had on the Greek scholars like Pythagoras and Socrates, Aristotle and Plato. Then there's a capital T theosophy, which usually is a a reference to an organization founded in 1875 by a Russian mystic named Helena Blavatsky. Helena Petrova Blavatsky, HPB, HP Blavatsky. She and um, a couple of her students, um, particularly a fellow named Henry Steele Alcott, um, uh, uh, and a woman named Annie Besant uh, founded this organization again in New York State, 19 or 1875, capital T Theosophy. And the reason it's important, these two forms of Theosophy, small T Theosophy, developing Neoplatonism and and um, shamanism, and the capital T Theosophy of the late 19th century is that this is, this is, again, perennialism. This is where people raised in the West began to look at Eastern philosophy, and people born and raised in the Eastern Hemisphere of the world in Asia began to study Western philosophy. And there was an attempt to unify East and West. Uh, before that, the only real unification that had happened in Europe was scholasticism, an attempt essentially to unify Aristotle with Christianity. And it had uh, marginal results. But theosophy was an attempt to unify, or maybe better said, harmonize all of the religions of the world. And... Again, this is what we mean by the perennialism or mysticism in general, these philosophies. And so out of this comes the idea of the Trinity repeated in many cases along with degrees of seven. The numbers three and the number seven. The numbers three and seven are very important in perennialism, in theosophy, in mysticism. And the relationship is that of the seven, the first three are primary and the next four are secondary uh, or uh, attributes of the first three. There are references in the Christian Bible to the seven spirits before the throne. This phrase appears, I think, four different times in Revelation. And again, you're, you're fundamentalists and you're very literal and orthodox. Uh, Christians have their own understanding of Revelation and their own understanding of seven spirits before the throne. But in theosophy, and mysticism in general, Rosicrucianism, Kabbalah, uh, 
This has a relationship to the tree of life in Kabbalah and is part of a basic understanding of the way in which the spiritual hierarchy is organized in levels and planes. Now, the seven spirits before the throne, again, the first three are primary, and I've already described them as the father aspect of God, which is the will of God or the power, the purpose the love aspect corresponding to the Christos or the Buddha nature. This is the love, the consciousness, the soul aspect of divinity, love as consciousness. And then the material universe, the mother aspect, so-called intelligent activity, um, the working out of the father's will and the son's love in physical depths. One, two, three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Mother. Okay. In uh, Kabbalah, it's Kether, Kachma, uh, and Bana. Kether, Kachma, and Bana. In, uh, in the Muslim uh, Islamic traditions, it's um, the beloved, love, and the lover. Right? Um, and there are many other trinities. You can find these in my website under Wisdom Nuggets. Uh, for example, uh, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva is the trinity in Hinduism, or in uh, Buddhism, it's, uh, uh, well, I'm drawing a mental blank here. Sangha would be third. Um, Oh, Buddha Dharma Sangha. Thank you. Senior moment. <laughs> Buddha Dharma and Sangha would be the trinity. Buddha being, again, the source, Dharma, the teaching or the way, the path, the love aspect. And Sangha is the community, um, the working out, uh, the manifestation, if you will. <clears throat> the... Uh, the other four spirits before the throne, four, five, six, and seven, are thought to be attributes or subsidiaries of those three primary waveforms, frequencies, um, colors, or notes, depending on how you look at it. Now, the universe takes its cue, according to these mystical philosophers, and again, a lot of what's interesting about this is the way this pops up in the ancient world in cultures and societies that are really not related or not connected to each other other than millions of years ago in prehistoric times. Remember, we just got here. Human beings, by all accounts, have only been here two or three million years, which is nothing. Right. Dinosaurs were here hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, by all scientific accounts, uh, human beings are maybe three million years old. And so if we all come from, as science is suggesting, a single tribe of about 10,000 people, genetically this is provable. We can go that far back to a, to a tribe in northern Africa of about 10,000 people. So we have that connection. 
But nevertheless, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years later, we see in shamanism and mysticism around the world these similar concepts of a spiritual hierarchy. And the idea that there's more to the spiritual realm than, quote, heaven. In fact, if heaven is the repository of souls, then heaven, sometimes called the buddhic plane, or sometimes even called the hierarchy, for it is the heart or the center of the whole spiritual skyscraper, okay? the heart of it, so-called heaven or the buddhic plane, is not the home of the father, but the home of the son. So in mysticism, your soul dwells now, even though each of us is incarnated into a physical form, we are an extension of a soul that could not be in place but, quote, heaven, close quote. That's where the soul lives. That's where it had no beginning and will have no end, for it's an energy that cannot be created nor destroyed. Think of your soul as a matrix or an organized magnetic field made out of love as consciousness. Well, the hierarchy says the father lives above One, the below them. Now, some people would say, well, this is what is meant by sitting at the right hand of the Father. Or Plato talks about the soul sharing the ground of God as a very important concept in philosophy in general, the ground of God. Google that. Sharing the ground of God. That would mean that, you know, you're all in the same building, but you're not going to hang with, <laughs> as a spiritual being on the other side, you're not done, Right? you're not going to be with the father aspect other than that you could never be uh, uh, mystics and that the physical universe, the material universe is pervaded by, uh, by spirit. So God is everywhere, a religious person would say. Consciousness is everywhere. Love is equally present everywhere. And the will of the Father is present everywhere. But nevertheless, in terms of the hierarchy, in terms of making an approach, mysticism suggests that that approach continues even after you die and leave this mortal coil behind. Now, that's a fascinating concept. Um, I don't know how that strikes you. You may say, wow, that's <clears throat> that's really neat, or, oh, no, this, this will never end. Um, th this approach, this uh, aspiration to know my source, 
um, I, I, again, my whole intention in starting this class a couple of years ago and continuing to do it week after week is not to lay down like fundamentalist religious people do the way it is. I, I have no desire to dictate to you uh, anything definitive, but quite the contrary, to share with you some of these veiled and, and uh, esoteric concepts that religion tends to ignore because it's fixated itself on a particular dogma, often very elementary and very simple for the masses. But a belief system that then becomes crystallized and inflexible and uh, often unpractical, impractical, and difficult to apply in our daily life and affairs. So we're talking about some basic differences here between simply you die and go to heaven or if you are not worthy and don't make the cut, it's the lake of fire for you. In mysticism, this is the lake of fire. This is hell, living in physical dents. Again, you're not being punished for anything. Actually, in mysticism, you're glorified for your willingness as a soul to volunteer to come here. Although, again, the heart has its urges, doesn't it? You know, love longs for more love. And like a, a Sagioli says, like a flower that turns toward the sun and grows and stretches and reaches, tracking the sun across the sky as if to know its source. We can feel in our hearts, if not our minds, that same longing, that same urge, that same attraction to know our source, to want to know the Father. So religion says, well, when you die, if you're good, right? You come to church, put money in the basket, pray to God, take Holy Communion if you're a Catholic, whatever. Live up to these rules. Then you go to heaven and live with God. Well, the mystic would say, well, you know, not really. Because God's in the penthouse and there's a hundred stories in this building and you may only be on the 49th floor when you die. <laughs> you know how people talk about old souls? He's an old soul or she is an old soul. As if they're more highly evolved than some other soul. Be careful of all of that. Spiritual evolution is not linear. So you may come across somebody in form in the physical dense material universe that you see as very primitive and unevolved who in fact as a soul may be very highly evolved. It's just not a linear thing. There's no time in the plane of the soul. And so from the soul's point of view, it's living all of its incarnations simultaneously. There is no linear order or evolution in that sense. We have to use these kinds of models sometimes, but you also have to expand your consciousness to consider these possibilities 
especially once you begin to recognize that the spiritual hierarchy, this realm beyond the material world, is free from time and space. That that both the dimensions of time and the dimensions of space are functions of the material world. And in the spiritual realm, there is obviously no space. It's beyond that, behind that, other than those dimensions. And if there's no space, there's no time. There's a space-time continuum. So, these are some of the basic concepts of the spiritual hierarchy, that the soul already exists in heaven. You can see how threatening this would be to the church. But that God is actually, as the father aspect, on a plane that is higher than this buddhic plane or repository of souls but that the soul's approach to the father aspect through these levels these tiers continues throughout eternity and some would say and you never really fully arrive because your existence as soul is to have a unique individualistic point of view Again, religions vary on this. Eastern philosophy, there's not a lot of mention about the soul aspect. Some people say, well, there's no soul in Hinduism, no soul in Buddhism or Taoism. It's just that when you die, you merge with the great cosmic oneness and lose all sense of your identity. Um, okay, that's a belief system. That's fine. But there are other belief systems that say that when you die as a physical being, shed the mortal coil, so to speak, go to, quote, heaven, the spiritual realms, the spiritual hierarchy beyond, you realize, you share the ground of God, as Plato said. Your consciousness is that there is but one thing at work there is but one life and you are not separated from anything you felt that way when you were in a physical body because you lived in a world of separated forms but now that you've left all that behind you're aware that there's just one life at work but it could be argued and many teachers have argued through through the millennia that your perspective, your individuated perspective, your unique point of view remains. Though there is just this one skyscraper and God lives in the penthouse, but whatever floor you're on and whatever window you look out, what you see is unique to you as an individuated soul. It's just an elevated perspective from the unique point of view you had as an individuated human being in a body, in a world of separated forms. Okay, so all the fear goes away, first of all, when you die. That's the most significant, from the mystic's point of view, the most significant aspect of mortal 
death is that you lose all your fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. You experience yourself as an inseparable part of the one life. But as a soul, continue to have a unique, individual point of view. Again, I hasten to add, I'm not dictating, I'm not telling you the way it is. I'm not saying any variation on this is wrong. I'm just teaching the ageless wisdom. You <laughs> you may love this. It may appeal to you. It may answer questions for you. Uh, then again, it may not resonate at all with you, or you might like some parts and toss aside the rest. That's what education is about. I just want to make clear that I'm not coming from a dogmatic place. It's okay with me, whatever you believe. I encourage you to... <laughs> to not only study, not only listen to these programs, but similar programs and continue your meditation and practice mindfulness. I think those are the three approaches to personal development, spiritual development, to study meditation and mindfulness. Okay, You continue that practice and You'll arrive at your own understandings, and then they will evolve. Again, part of the wisdom is recognizing that the more you know, the more you realize there is still to be known. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. The more and I like to say it this way, the more you know, the better questions you ask. All right. Uh, part of being a philosopher or a mystic is not having all the answers, but uh, having great questions. I think it's Lao Tzu that said to add, uh, he said, how did he say it? Uh, for more knowledge, add to. For more wisdom, take away from. Right? So the less you realize you know, the wiser you will be. It's the fool who believes that he knows something. So, I'd rather encourage you to reach for understanding than knowledge. Uh, we could even have some arguments over those semantics, but that's the way I would say it. Knowledge is a wonderful thing, but without understanding, uh, how much value does it really have? You have to have not only knowledge, but maybe even more importantly, understanding. and Knowledge is not just answers. It's good questions. Understanding, in particular, requires really good questions. Uh, when I talk to broadcasting students, I haven't done it in a few years, but I used to speak to broadcasting students in universities and colleges, and for those who aspired to do radio talk shows, uh, I always used to say, you don't have to have all the answers. Best just to have really good questions. Don't be the answer guy. You'll just become a know-it-all. How many talk show hosts have you heard that just know-it-all, right? And how boring to listen to a know-it-all. But somebody that has great questions and is more interested in questioning and asking questions and saying, well, what do you think to the guest and what do you think to the caller? That's fascinating. Now, instead of this one know-it-all, 
on the radio, the same channel, the same time every day. You've got all these thousands and thousands of people with good questions, much more interesting, much more likely to promote real understanding. All right, so those are some of the basic uh, aspects of the spiritual hierarchy. Again, um, I just want you to know that this concept of a multi-tiered heaven, a, uh, a path that continues toward, you know, toward your source, toward the Godhead, which I hesitate to even get into this, but I might as well, since I'm talking about the spiritual hierarchy. You know, I've already suggested in a heretical and blasphemous way that the Christos or Buddha nature rules over the plane of the souls. But the approach to the father aspect continues. Well, as long as I'm a heretic and a blasphemer, I might as well go a little bit further with this. In mysticism, the ultimate highest kether or Godhead, the absolute source of divinity, the one about whom naught may be said, would stand above the Father aspect. Uh, again, that, that, that'll get you burned at the stake and waterboarded. Or not in that order, waterboarded and then burned at the stake. <laughs> in Wyoming, anyway, where Dick Cheney lives, get your fingernails pulled out in the Great Inquisition for suggesting now it's like, well, there is no other God but God. Yeah, but doesn't mean that God doesn't have its components or its aspects, its parts, you see even though ultimately it's all a matter of appearance. Because ultimately the one God cannot be less than all that is. And so let me give you the mystical or esoteric definition of the absolute, the Godhead, above the Father aspect that embraces the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Mother aspect. Kether Kachman Bana, the beloved love and the lover, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the Brahma, the Vishnu, and the Shiva, the threeness, <laughs> the threeness of all things. Right. What is the great container? A philosopher uses the word absolute rather than the word God. Right. Or the ancient Jews talked about the one about whom naught may be said. And mystics have always admonished their students to avoid the name of God, to avoid naming God. Even though down through the ages, much has been said about the power of discovering and using the name of God as if there's great power in knowing God's name. So what did the old rabbis do? They chose a word 
uh, a set of letters that had no vowels and therefore could not be pronounced out loud. I-H-V-H. Sometimes you see it printed I-H-W-H. Okay. The vowels are said in Kabbalistic studies to be the God sounds because you cannot speak a word that has no vowel. There has to be A, E, I, O, U. One of those five vowels, sometimes Y, has to be in the word for it to be pronounceable. So the old rabbi said, aha, rather than blaspheme God by naming God, a name would have a beginning and an end. A name would be a limitation. A name would say this is what God is, and anything that is not this is not God. Well, wait a minute, what's outside God? What kind of God has an outside? This is a basic dilemma. But people being people, <laughs> doing what they do, they began to pronounce the impronounceable IHVH as Yahweh, or YHVH, or YH, there's different variations on that, and became Yahweh, Yahweh became Jehovah, these are ancient names for God, but according to the ancient teachers, any name of God would be blasphemy. In Islam, God's name is Allah, and there is no other. Right? The name is very important in Islam, except to the Sufi. The Sufi is a Muslim mystic, is not interested in names. They're on the path of love and ecstasy and bliss, and they unify with the divine via the path of passionate love, dying to that love. Okay, so where does this leave us? The idea of a Godhead or an absolute, the one about whom not may be said, that stands above and embraces the Trinity, Father, Son, and Mother, is a concept that you're not going to run into in any religion. And again, I don't need for you to believe or disbelieve or... I just want you to know it's part of the ancient philosophies of this earth world. And you can ponder it, and you can, in this day and age, Google it, and you can reflect upon the concept in your meditations and see what comes of it. It's an important part of mysticism. And so one could argue that the the approach to the father aspect or to the ultimate divinity never ends. So even if you die and go to heaven, your spiritual unfoldment, your spiritual evolution or development continues. It's not just here or there. And once I make the cut, 
it's over. Many people have said to me over the years, you know, heaven sounds like a very boring place. And if I can go to hell for dancing, um, drinking, uh, laughing, and having a good time, then maybe I'd rather be there. Sounds a whole lot more interesting. Heaven sounds very, very boring. Well, that's the failure of religion to explain what you do once you get there, this idea of rest in peace. Uh, you spend all of eternity in a hammock or a barca lounger, right? Um, free from any appetite, free from paying bills, uh, free from <laughs> any of the trials and tribulations, the travails of physical existence. That's enough for some people, happy ever after, and they lived happily ever after. Well, then what? Eternity is a very long time. Well, what if there's more to do? What if there are ways outside of physical incarnation for you to continue to be of service to your spiritual brothers and sisters, to work in groups as a, as a soul that is not incarnated, that has already lived its single incarnation or broken the karmic wheel of reincarnation and is moving on up like the Jeffersons. Well, perhaps through service, through helping out, through participating in groups. Some philosophies, like the vow of the Bodhisattva in Buddhism, suggest you have an opportunity to influence people who are incarnated on the earth or elsewhere in the physical dense universe, to influence them intuitively, to inspire them, even if you, as a solar being, are no longer incarnated yourself. Others say, no, no, you turn and direct your attention to the Father and continue your spiritual evolution, your unfoldment as a soul on its own plane, working your way up through this skyscraper toward the top, headed for the penthouse, working your way up through the spiritual hierarchy, which makes living in earth the bottom rung of the ladder. This is, as, again, the mystic would say this is as bad as it gets. Why? Because you're separated from the source of your love. And that hurts. And so we study, and we meditate, and we pray, and we practice mindfulness prayer not as a petition to God but as a reorientation of the self a, a realignment like cleaning out the gutters <laughs> opening yourself up to this radiation this inspiration of spirit of consciousness as love 
Uh, let me <coughs> quickly review and see if that pretty much pretty much sums it up. I think I think that that's pretty much the overview I wanted to give you. Again, I'd be really really pleased to respond to any specific questions that this brings up for you. Um, and and comments as well. I'll be happy to comment on your comment if you want to state it that way instead of in a question form. If you're on the web listening to us live right now, you can use the text box in the lower left. Be sure and hit submit after you put your name and city and question or comment in the box. And if you're on the telephone, just press star 2. That'll indicate on my console here on my computer that uh, you want me to unmute you. I can unmute any one or more of the callers. I can unmute a couple of you at a time. I could put you guys in touch with each other if we wanted. Bring more than one caller on at a time if I wanted. But the ability to open up the lines one at a time is a great feature of this teleseminar service that I'm using. and uh, I, I, I just wish you weren't so bashful. I think it's all my years at radio. People think, oh, it's a radio program. No, it's just you and me on the telephone. <laughs> Press star 2 on your telephone touchpad if you have any comment or question about our topic today, spiritual hierarchy. And uh, let me go to those pages now. And... Uh, Good, good. Let's let's start with the um, let's start with the text Q and A. Here we go. Wasn't coming up. Now it's coming up. And then we'll go to the telephones. I see a couple of hands are raised. Let me get a <clears throat> let me get a swallow of coffee here real quick. a time check. Gosh, is it really? Wow. So we're over an hour into this already. I didn't realize that I'd run so long. Well, uh, first of all, from Pittsburgh, PA, John Bowles is with us again this week. And John says, Aloha, Michael and Doreen. Hiya, John. We'll see you soon. John's coming to Maui for the retreat next month. I know he's excited about that. Carol Postel in La Habra says, hello, Michael and Doreen. Somebody says you're cutting in and out. Cannot understand you. You know, every once in a while, this um, I lean on the mute button. I apologize. I hope that wasn't uh, didn't happen for too long a period. Um, Donna and Mark are with us from San Gabriel. Hi, guys. They say, hello, Michael. Uh, it's Donna and Mark live. Great to be here. Good subject for the class. Best to you and Doreen. And uh, they say hi to Carol, too. And uh, let me see if we got anybody else here. Gosh, I hope that didn't happen for too much or too, too long a period. I've got this little mute button. Now I'm concerned about that. Let me know, would somebody type in the message about just how bad that was? Was that for a long period of time? Am I going to have to edit? 
before I put the podcast up. Okay, let's go to the telephone, Zen, and see who we've got. Maybe maybe somebody here can tell me. Let's start with Diane in Albuquerque. And Diane, this is the Mystery School. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm feeling better and better today. I'm so glad. You know, wow, this is a lot to comprehend. And, you know, you said there's no time. Everything's happening at once. So our souls are pretty calm, cool, and collected, but we're living lives, and for many people, I guess those lives would be just a sheer struggle. Uh, For some, you know, horrific if you look around the world. Right. Um, And so while we're struggling at the same time, our souls are calm, cool, and collected, correct? Right. And if there's no time then in that theory, it would be possible that we're living many lives at one time. Conceivably. Yeah. So that's a lot to accept. You know, I I keep thinking, well, human beings are coming up with these ideas and that's theories. True. That's and, true. And my question with the Bible during my life was that it was written by human beings, and in so many parts of the Bible, you know, it's not factual. And so, because it seems like you have a struggle here, and then you go, if, if, you, if you behave well, and you grow, and you're mindful, then you go there, but there's struggles that are continuous. You know, it's almost as if this theory is a reflection of life on Earth where you have hierarchies, you're working to move forward, that type of thing. Right. So right. It's, it's hard to swallow. What do you believe? Well, it's the only thing really that gives life any meaning. I mean, again, we're always limited as human beings by the mind, how well developed our consciousness is by the brain through which the mind works as long as we're incarnated. And so to get that mind or that brain around these enormous, all-encompassing concepts is, is obviously a challenge. But the great existential questions, uh, who am I? What am I for? Why am I here? Um, become somewhat answerable in the context of what we've laid out here. Uh, who you are is a soul incarnated into form, part of the one life, the only thing that exists, the one God, the one life, the one thing. The Egyptians called it the one thing. <laughs> you're you're an inseparable, indivisible part of that that incarnates. So there's an appearance and a feeling of separation. Uh, to deal with the fear, to respond to that fear with love, to find a path back, and that would be the whole purpose, would be to redeem 
fear and ignorance for God to know itself through us. Now, the idea that God doesn't already know everything, again, is heretical and blasphemous. But it's conceivable that that the magnificence of the one thing includes its expansion. Is not the physical universe expanding, growing, spreading out, moving on out? Is not every life form growing, evolving, growing within a lifetime and, and then evolving over many lifetimes simply through genetics if not a reincarnation of spirit. Uh, now, we've got a suggestion here of a real purpose uh, to become more, to expand, to grow. Perhaps it's as simple as life is growth. Life is learning. Life is understanding. Life is traveling <laughs> and experiencing new things and why not? So um, you asked me what I believe. I, uh, you know, my belief systems, what I know, what I think I know, what I believe, uh, varies from day to day. I, I'm just always searching. And some things make sense, and some things I find abhorrent and don't even want to consider the extent to which human beings can be evil. And ignorant, for example, is terrifying to me to look on the dark side. But to take what we don't know and turn it into what we know, to to have the experience, to face our fears, uh, to risk applying these concepts in our lives, to make them practical, I think that's the challenge to each of us, not just to academically study the wisdom, but apply love in our lives that's the only tool we have is love but to know it that love is so much more than this warm fuzzy emotion that love is consciousness or awareness itself and that it has so many different qualities like trust and respect and caring and kindness and generosity and and forgiveness and compassion and and patience and tolerance and to develop these qualities of love and and apply them in our lives um, <laughs> as a kind of weapon of choice against that which is scary and confusing and essentially evil is where the rubber meets the road for me. What, what of this can I use in my daily life and affairs? Uh, other than that, I'll meet you on the other side and we'll talk more about it. <laughs> right, when we know. And I yeah. think for a lot of individuals, well, I don't know if for a lot, but for me personally, from the time I was a child, I was always very aware that there was something godlike that was more powerful than me. And that I was very aware that I was never really alone. And <clears throat> if that's all we get, that awareness in life and that that power whatever it is is love then I guess we make it through and wait for the answers later 
Well, you're going to make it through one way or the other. Yeah, right. Yeah, or inextinguishable, inexhaustible. Um, again, um, simple laws of physics like conservation of mass and energy says anything that is energy, and it appears we have only energy and mass, only spirit and matter. Um, the material stuff is always in flux, always changing, always uh, rusting or corroding or fading away. But the energy cannot be created or destroyed. And they're convertible. The, the material is but a manifestation of the energy. So it's a, the, the appearance of energy or spirit, that fades, that dies, that corrodes and rusts, that goes away. All things must pass. Everything is impermanent. But its source, energy or spirit, cannot be created nor destroyed. So physics proves metaphysics in that regard. And the mechanics now is proving the same principles, the observer effect, the idea that there are infinite possibilities. And, you know, I didn't get into this, but take everything that I said and multiply that by infinity and then do that an infinite number of times. You know, infinity to the power of infinity is what quantum physics is saying about reality, that it just doesn't end. And uh, uh, again, our, our brain is designed to work in three dimensions of space plus a fourth dimension of time. So how do you ponder infinity? It's a, it's a real challenge. Great answers today. Thank you. It was a wonderful class. Thank you. And uh, how, how much was cut out by me leaning on that button? You know, it lasted 10 minutes, maybe, somewhere around 10 minutes. And it was intermittent on and off throughout that? Yeah. Damn. Big pieces missing? Um, yeah, where you couldn't understand the sentence. And, oh. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but I'm in New Mexico, and... The phone system isn't perfect. No, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was me. It's happened in the past. Okay. And it's just that my headset has this little button about halfway down between the headset and the phone, and if I lean against the table, sometimes that gets trapped. I bet that's what happened. Okay. I I'll, I'll fix that. I guess I'll just have to edit some of that out. The worst parts. Thank you, though, Diane. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for the class today. Uh, aloha. Aloha. And in West Los Angeles, we have Robert. Hi, Robert. You're in the Mystery School with Michael. How you doing? Hello, Michael. Aloha. Aloha. Actually, my experience of it, uh, of the, uh, the muting out, the winking out phenomenon, was only about a minute, actually, on my end of things. Oh, good. Okay. Um, I, I don't. Maybe, maybe there's a an alternative warp working uh, between here and and New Mexico, that, <laughs> uh, or, or the or the other way around. You know, whether things uh, contract going this way or expand that way. <laughs> Who knows? Um, yeah, uh, contemplation of infinity um, <clears throat> made uh, even more. 
impracticable by the realization that uh, such an absolute field awareness would, uh, of necessity, have to be a causeless effect, on top of which that field of awareness that is not even one, which is a conundrum, uh, would then form an intention to know of itself. That which does not know of itself forming an intention to know itself. It's it's a complete and absolute conundrum brought about by language. And what I wanted to offer the group today and to the world is that the mystic path begins when you jettison everything uh, in terms of ideologies and theologies, beliefs and philosophies. I've done this myself. It's a terribly lonely place for a while. Uh, it can even be terrifying to face existence without the orienting myths and philosophies that frankly were invented and created by man just for that reason, to stabilize uh, an ocean of emotion within us amidst this experience of experience. Um, the, you know, the, the shows like yours, which are, I call, you know, no BS presentations, which in my view are terribly worthwhile because you ask for nothing in return. You're, you're a guy that's out there floating around on a volcanic island with a radio mic offering stuff to people essentially for free. Uh, you're not asking them to pay anything other than maybe a, a toll call, but you know this is in huge contrast to the myriad of so-called self-professed spiritual masters who charge people 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars to go on some retreat on a cruise liner. Um, yes, I understand you're having a retreat there in Maui, but that's a little bit different experience. Um, so, so in one breath, I'm saying, well, yes, we have to, we have to sort of, in a way, abandon it all. And in another, um, <laughs> for whatever reason, we still have to discuss it, and it shows like yours really further that cause. Um, there, there, there is a lot I could say, but again, in the end, all I can really do, or all anybody can really do, and what the masters have done for centuries and millennia, is point people in the direction of a practice, uh, point them to something that will take them out of the activity of their minds for a bit, like the Zen koan or the the impossibly um, conundrum-laden sayings of Lao Tzu or or any any spiritual master you can find, and just experience experience in a naked sort of sense, without some orienting mythology. Um, or uh, a guidebook that tends to script things 
but which unfortunately, as we've said many times, is a construct that is based on the past experience which forms the mind which then cannot go beyond what has already been experienced. It can't go beyond what is already known. It can't know the unknown through some known experience. <laughs> Simply not open to it. So if we can just get into the habit of of imagining, for example, an exercise that I've used, what would my relationship or what would your relationship with this planet, this universe, and even yourself be if you found yourself alone here one day? And ponder that with everything you got. Yeah. It's a good exercise. It's scary, and so to stay with it is to face that fear. Um, it's a funny word, alone. It's really just one letter short of all one. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> rather contradictory in that sense. Um, just like the number one you mentioned uh, um can mean uh, the absolute not even being a one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> the idea of this one as opposed to that one. There's no, there's no other. There's nothing to measure it against. There, there is no, you know, other against which it right. can be a one, and in an infinite, in the sense of an infinite, unending, limitless one. Feel it can't be, it can never be limited to just one, even though it's all there is. I like the, uh, I guess, Zen saying um, that the map is not the territory, um, or the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. It, it's, a, it's a pretty popular and, and common cone because. Um, I, I just think it's so valuable. We we need maps, but a map at the end of the day is just a representation and is not the real thing. You know, it's a symbol. And as you point out, we're limited in our discussion and our teaching and provoking each other to consider this or that. We're limited by words, which are separated forms that we string in a linear fashion into phrases, sentences, paragraphs. Um, and, of course, the definitions of each word have their connotations and denotations, and it's a wonder we communicate as well as we do. But to remind ourselves that we have to deal with these limitations, I think, is wise to, you know, at, at the beginning and end of every day or beginning and end of every session to remember that um, we can make these approaches. And indeed, I think we're compelled in some senses to, to follow the longing or the urge to understand ourselves, to to know ourselves better 
and yet to recognize how limited we will be at our best uh, is wise to know that there's always more that cannot be known that you're not going to understand that you wouldn't recognize even if it was staring you in the face um, and that's that quality of humility I think that that uh, says I'm going to do my damnedest I'm going to do my best to discern a sense of identity and a motive who am I and what am I for bottom line but I will fail at that repeatedly and yet it's still a uh, a worthy and worthwhile uh, effort uh, there are rewards along the way even if I even if I don't get to the penthouse anytime soon you know I don't get the gold ring anytime soon there are these wonderful rewards these moments of tranquility these these periods of contentment where you just find yourself with a silly little grin on your face experiencing the the miracle that is life and then of course we're plunged right back into oh my god what is this bill I didn't how am I gonna pay this or what is this for what do you mean it got lost in the mail and <laughs> well, now what are we gonna do and so we have to keep reorienting ourselves that's why I feel so strongly about the practice of meditation and it is a practice, you know. It's something we have to do again and again and again. And learn to, as I said earlier in the class today, wield love. Not not as we would wield a weapon, but more like a tool. Love as consciousness, as a tool. Not, not just an identity. Um, well, that doesn't work. Those words don't really work. In addition to being an identity and a motive, uh, a, a way of being, a tool that we use to make sense of our lives, even though we're going to fall short over and over again, it's worthwhile. It's fun. That it uh, it works. It, it's that's why everybody virtually uh, asks these questions and reads and studies and understands. Uh, Somebody that hasn't been into a church in decades or never picks up spiritual literature uh, still has thoughts, still wonders, still has that tug on their hearts. You know, who are you? What are you for? Why are you doing this? Why do you even get out of bed in the morning? You know, give me a parting shot, Robert. Oh, that very longing, the experience of that very longing is, in fact, the... Uh echo of the intention of the absolute in you the intention of the absolute yes I like that yeah intention being yeah the the intent, aspect, first that, that intent to know thyself yeah uh, what am I here for what am I the your your very feeling your very experience of that longing within yourself that longing that you experience within yourself is the, the kind of echo of the, the very intention of the absolute to do that very thing on its level, however impossible it is for us to know that. 
Yeah, that's the father aspect of the will, as I understand it. Intention is uh, will. Um, uh, Buddha says intention is karma. In other words, it's it's not so much what you do or say, but the intention behind what you do or say that uh, manifests as karma in your life. Yeah, your your motivations are. are... Are critical. That's why the, the you know when we don't have much time. But this is a whole other subject. But the uh, you know why do uh, uh, bad things happen to good people? Uh, it's because we we may see actions, but we don't know what a person's motivation may be. Right. And it's the motivation that's going to bear fruit. Yeah. Nor do they often know their motivation. True, because so much of what we think we think is actually what we are given to think by the myriad of subconscious programs that lay below the threshold of awareness. And this is why everybody from the Buddha on backward and forward has encouraged people, quote, you know, be a light unto yourself. You say, use the consciousness that you have in this moment, you know, to be, in my words, uh, Robert, today, like, a guy going down in the depths in the diving bell, you know, with a light illuminating the darkness. Use that, use something, and you've talked about it, a breath, something, natural body rhythm, anything to create a thread of unbroken awareness as you pass through these depths. Um, this bears fruit, as you alluded to a moment ago, that is really almost beyond people's expectations. But, again, nearing almost 3 o'clock here on the West Coast, uh, we probably don't have time to get into it. Now, I don't think we're even going to be able to do our med today, but thank you, Robert. Good stuff. I appreciate uh, your being here and uh, and calling the class today. Aloha. Hey, take care, Michael. Aloha. And uh, so thanks to both Dan and Robert for calling, and uh, let me go back to the text page, the Q&A page, if anybody else has jumped in there. Yeah, we do have, um, let's see, in San Gabriel, hold on, let me hit refresh. Um, Mark says, um, just a few segments cut on and off, Made it a bit choppy to hear what you were saying, but only for a few minutes, one to three times. We all hung in there. Good. Thanks, Mark. Also on Burbank, David Cantu. Hello, David. He said, uh, gosh, I thought it was just on my end. I heard the missing piece, but did not, but, but not for long durations of time, maybe just a few minutes overall. I'll edit that out because... Um, you know, a lot of people like David are going to assume uh, it's the player. If I send the podcast out like that, people are going to start hitting their player and saying, what's the matter with this thing? It's shorting out. <laughs> I don't want that. So I'll I'll edit that, that part out. Yeah, I wish we had time for a meditation. I'll have to leave it to you guys to do your own meds today because I've got real time 53 minutes after the hour in. And the system goes down at the top of the hour. So I'll let you guys go. Thank you a lot for being here. Again, if you want to email me, 
especially with suggestions about topics. It's not that I'm running out, that's for sure. Uh, but I'd like to respond to your interests. And so if you have a, an idea of a topic or a theme that you'd like me to address in a future mystery school class, shoot me an email, mb, my initials, at theagelesswisdom.com. Okay? Email me at mb at theagelesswisdom.com. Reminding you that uh, we do have uh, three openings for our mindfulness retreat. Um, Robert made reference to the ocean liner, uh, $10,000 ocean liner cruise. Uh, it's not that. Uh, it is a <laughs> it is a retreat. It is in Maui, but it's more along the lines of a Walden experience. It's a wilderness experience. We call it gourmet camping. You're going to have delicious food prepared for you three times a day. You're going to sleep inside or outside under a sheltered deck or out under the stars or in a yurt. You'll have some options. But you'll bring a sleeping bag or a bedroll, and we have twin air mattresses for every participant. So you're going to sleep in luxury. We do have hot showers and flush toilets, but you're going to be uh, about an hour and a half from civilization deep in the rainforests of Maui. On the northeastern shore near Hana, Maui, if you know the famous Hana Resort and the road to Hana, well, our retreat in the middle of next month, February 13 through 18 of 2011, will be on 70 privately owned acres. You're going to have the run of the place. In Mahiku, on the northeastern shore, not far from Hana, Maui, along the ocean, on a bluff, actually it's right next to George Harrison's estate, George Harrison in the early 70s, bought 100 acres in Mahiku, and we're on a 70-acre parcel adjacent to that. So if you want to see what inspired George Harrison to write Here Comes the Sun, join us. But most of all, this is a mindfulness retreat, and after a couple of days of clearing emotional baggage and learning some basic problem-solving and decision-making skills, days three, four, and five are going to be devoted to the concept of mindfulness. To learn to live without judgment, moment to moment. It's a startling awakening that awaits you in paradise. We're going to use the profound, the profound peace to expand your awareness to guide you away from the stories that you narrate inside your head to an experience of what's going on right now. And then how to bring yourself back to that level of peace and expanded awareness, free from judgment. We're going to teach you what the brain does in its search for approval, its search for control, and it's constant judging of things as right or wrong. 
and show you how to let all that go. And as Christ said, be like little children, alive, awake, carefree, no worries, in the moment, happy and spontaneous, which by the end of the week will become a skill set you take back to the mainland with you. So go to focusedpassion.com or theagelesswisdom.com and click on the Maui Retreat button to find out all about it. Email me or there's a phone number there. You can leave us a message and I'll call you back and tell you all about it. Um, We have, I believe, only two people coming as a couple. Uh, Most everybody else is coming as an individual and we have a pretty much equal number of men and women so uh, and a variety of ages so it's it's really going to be a great experience valentine's day is monday the 14th but you're gonna you're gonna have a different experience with valentine's day we're going to talk about self-love and how all love is a function of self-love and what is the self and what is so lovable about that self anyway that you find in paradise, a true self, a higher self, uh, an authentic nature that's available in your heart and in your mind. And again, accessible when you get back to the mainland and stuck in traffic or rushing to meet a deadline or dealing with the chaos of the life you've created. You'll have as a tool set or skill set the ability to return to this place in your mind and in your heart and see things so much more clearly. Practical, portable tools and techniques. That's what it's about. The Maui Mindfulness Retreat. It'll change your life. It's guaranteed. Don't miss it. If you're on the fence, do it. (laughs) I can't say when it's going to happen again. So, theagelesswisdom.com or focusedpassion.com Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. And aloha from Maui, this is Michael Bevan.